1: The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich, and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as attorney general at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer.
0: So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 138 of Clean Up on Isle 45. It's Wednesday, September 13th, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Struck. And
2: frankly, I don't know how we're going to cover everything in one hour, but we'll do our best. We have multiple filings from the defendants and the district attorney in Fulton County. Mark Meadows lost his bid to remove his case to federal court. Cheese Bros lost his motion to sever from Sidney Powell. And Judge McBurney has released the Fulton County Special Grand Jury Report.
0: Yeah, with no opposition. Very interesting. Uh, we also have a Senate GOP report that admits they have no evidence of Biden corruption, despite, I think, McCarthy opening an impeachment inquiry today. We have potential plea talks for indicted Republican Congressman George Santos. Uh, maybe plea talks, but we we aren't sure. Um, but we'll talk about that. And the Senate has confirmed Biden's FCC pick, ending a years-long deadlock. But first, we have to thank our new patrons. Uh, if you want these episodes ad-free and early, and you want access to the bonus episodes every week, uh, head to patreon.com slash aisle forty-five pod A-I-S-L-E four five P O D. Whatever name you sign up with, we will read it. So big thanks this week to Susan Lefavor, Shotzi Olson, Tarkin Fin bin Win Bim Lim, Bus Stop, F Tang, F Tang, Ole, Biscuit Barrel.
2: Nice. I saw that and I'm like, no way you make it through. But you did, the flying
0: colors. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Susan Martin, Corona Knight, uh, Victoria Corolo blake Vicky Tandowski, SB and SoCal, Susan Belknap, Astria, Preston Kay, and Pam Booth. Again, thanks everybody so much for signing up to be a patron for Cleanup on L45. You make the show go. So let's start with Meadows. He had a bad week. <laughs> <laughs> he lost his motion to remove his case in federal court. Uh, And since then, he has asked for an emergency stay pending appeal to the 11th Circuit. Uh, And this is bad news for Meadows, but it's also bad news for Donald and the others who want to remove this to federal court. Um, We know that uh, Clark, Jeffrey Clark, wants to remove some of the uh, fraudulent electors want to remove to federal court. And Trump filed something that doesn't exist in the law with the court saying, hey, guys, I might file to remove my it's case the, to federal call court?
2: call-me-maybe motion, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: um, and, you know, I think he was waiting to see what would happen with Meadows' arguments. And now that they have failed spectacularly, maybe he'll, maybe he'll file but with different reasons than, than Meadows put forth. And, you know, I got to say, I thought that uh, he was going to lose based on the nature of the RICO statute. Because Fannie Willis got to weigh in, and we talked about this last week, and she said, look, he doesn't have to have any overt acts. Uh, because of RICO, everyone else's overt acts count. Like, you are responsible for the actions of everyone in that criminal enterprise. That's the the nature of the of the RICO statute. But when Judge Jones weighed in, he's like, you didn't do any of this under the color of your office. There was maybe one overt act where you set up a phone call that could be considered part of your job. But no, none of this is part of your job. And you also kind of violated the Hatch Act, my bro, <laughs> sort of Just a little what bit. he's, you know, because on the stand, Meadows said, yeah, no, I was, you know, campaigning um, for Trump. That's not legal. Now, there's no crim- criminal punishment for violating the Hatch Act. Um, you can be fired. They tried. That's how they tried to remove me from my job, because I had a podcast about the Mueller investigation. They failed uh, at that uh, because I didn't violate the Hatch Act. Uh, but Meadows did. So that's fun. And now I'm interested in your thoughts on, does this make him uh, not a good witness uh, if he wants to cooperate down the road with, say, Jack Smith?
2: Well, I mean, there's certainly going to be issues with what he, and, you know, Fonnie Willis, as as we mentioned, certainly during the um, bonus episode, I think, talked about Meadows' statements on the stand and to the extent some of those statements were in conflict with earlier testimony that he had given. I think the more he talks about things that are, you know, if not, a plain false statement chargeable as a felony, they certainly are something that a, you know, somebody on the other side and presumably Meadows would, you know, in this context would be a prosecution witness that somebody on the defense side of the table would say, Hey, look, you know, they, even the prosecutor, and this isn't just in Fulton County, right? This is somebody potentially if Meadows were to testify in federal court, uh, either, you know, probably not Florida, as far as we know, but certainly as it relates to the DC charges that Jack Smith has brought, A defense attorney can sit there and say, hey, look, isn't it true that this, you know, in a court filing, the district attorney in Fulton County indicated that there is reason to question your credibility. So absolutely, this is something that they could go after Meadows for uh, trying to impeach his credibility, not just, again, not just in Fulton County, but in any other court that's going on. So this is, as we, you know, kind of talked about and predicted, this is getting really complicated really fast because you have a lot of interlocked pieces that, you know, Mar-a-Lago kind of stands alone, right? The, the classified documents, it's a discrete set of events. You know, there are some players, you know, did that, for instance, that Trump waving around the war plan that allegedly Milley had provided him about, you know, as it's been reported, um, uh, war plans with regard to Iran, that was, it appears to writers who were, uh, engaged with Mark Meadows writing his biography. So that there's a little overlap there, but that's kind of a clean set of events. The rest of this is all intertwined. And so, again, I, I think it is problematic for Meadows. I think, you know, does that diminish his value as a witness to the feds? You know, potentially, I, I would hope this is something that they – already sort of thought through and said, look, you know, this is, you know, and it was the Michael Cohen problem that a lot of the things that like we right. looked at, certainly, you know, Mueller and others, any, and, and Alvin Bragg, I'm sure is, is thinking about this as well. You are going to have people attack Michael Cohen's credibility. So, you know, this is something that prosecutors think about. It is not something that, you know, they're just suddenly waking up and saying, oh my God, we got a problem. I'm willing to bet they've thought this through, but it, it's certainly not an easy, clean, fact pattern. And, you know, stepping back a little bit, just looking at Meadows, in many ways, his argument to remove this to federal court, other than Trump, he had some of the strongest arguments going. And when you look at, you know, Jeff Clark's trying, but he, you know, same thing with him. He had multiple people telling him, you know, Jeff, that's not your job. And so, you know, he was he was <laughs> repeatedly told by people, you know, saying, up to and including, you know, you're an environmental lawyer. When we go back to your office, when we have an oil spill, we'll, we'll call you sort of thing. So I I think the fact that Meadows lost this you know, does present a, um, a road ahead that is problematic for the other defendants, but we'll see what the 11th Circuit does. I mean, the 11th Circuit may reverse, and you know, if the 11th Circuit doesn't, I, I, I'm willing to bet you that uh, Meadows is going to try and take this to the Supreme Court. So there are at least two, two more opportunities for Meadows to get this decision uh, reversed.
0: Yeah, and uh, I don't know. It's it's we'll see what happens, but it's good, probably going to be an expedited Eleventh Circuit appeal. I'm not sure he'll get a stay, um, remanding this to uh, state court, but he might might be an administrative stay. We'll see, and we'll let you know. Uh, and talking about speaking of standing alone, the cheese, the cheese, cheese bro. He, he lost his motion to sever from Sidney Powell. He was like, "Get her away from me! I don't want her anywhere near me." And uh, the judge, Judge McAfee. Um, he is the the new judge. He was appointed this year by Governor Kemp uh, down in Georgia. He's a state judge down there. He's presiding over this case, but he has a, a history of, of being a, a, a litigator uh, in trials. And so he said, no, you can't. No, there's no you haven't made the argument. You haven't met the very low bar you need to meet to sever from from here. So they will be tried together, Powell and Cheesebro. Um, on October 23rd, pending, you know, any uh, delay, Uh, but he didn't seem keen on trying all 19 defendants together, which is still the district attorney's position. But when you have people who do not want to take advantage of the speedy trial law in Georgia, who want the extra time, I think you're going to be hard-pressed to force them. Uh, So I think, as as I've said from the beginning, I think we're going to end up having different buckets of people here. We'll have some early trial folks and he said, judge, the judge said, other people who want to sever will take them one case at a time uh, as they come in and see whether or not we're going to have them all early people tried together. But I think it's going to come down to all the early people go first um, and then we'll have the people who don't want to go early and they might be split up depending on how much how many there are because, you know, you would usually do like six at a time so that you don't have 19 people at a, at a defense table or now 17. Uh and then, you know, with we we were gonna see if anybody was gonna be removed to federal court. I don't see that happening um with with the pretty solid arguments that Judge Jones put forth to not remove this to federal court. Uh and I don't think that uh any of the other people who want to remove uh or may want to remove are going to be able to make an argument that uh that pierces what uh, Judge Jones found with with Meadows specifically. So I think we're gonna have Two two sets of trials. I think we're going to have the regular stuff going sometime, whenever down the road we'll have the the early people going. And it's I don't think it's going to be October twenty third either, but that's the current date set. Um, yeah, because you know there can be tolls um, for the. I, I think Georgia law works the same way that the federal speedy trial act works, which means you know some of the days don't count, and they have status updates and things like that. But it might not. They might have to go by the end of October. Uh, but seems like they might end up going together. So. We'll see, but he, he his his motion to, to suffer sever from Sydney failed, so well, that's where we are with that.
2: Yeah, and I don't blame Judge McAfee for not wanting to trial nineteen. I mean, just from you know a couple of recent experiences, if you look at the federal trials for both the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, I mean, there were several defendants tried together, and those were, you know, complex because remember, every if you're going to try people together, when you've got to get all of those defendants, not only in the same room, but all of their attorneys in the same room and that, it you know, somebody might have an objection to something that somebody doesn't and you may have disagreement between the defendants. You may have agreement between the defendants. I mean, I'm thinking back to, you know, Rachel Maddow's Ultra uh, podcast series talking about this just convoluted, horrible, horrible and complex trial and I don't blame. Judge McAfee at all for wanting to split it up. And I agree with you. I mean, I think if you have some defendants that do that do not want a speedy trial, that want more time, I don't know how the, the DA gets to, you know, say, no, you don't get that. We're going to try you all quickly as much as she may want all 19 at once. I don't think that's going to happen. And, you know, on the other hand, I, I, I do think, you know, both Cheesebro and, and Powell do have the right to a speedy trial. So I, I would be shocked if this goes on October 23rd, but certainly, you know, a, a nice Addition to the Thanksgiving meal of, you know, turkey, ham and Sidney Powell to the slammer would be a um, would be a lovely way to finish up the or begin the holiday season. So we'll see. And I'm curious, too, like, is it who else joins the two of them Uh, and whether or not as, you know, certainly if they are convicted, there is nothing like watching one of your co-conspirators no longer allegedly, but now, you know, convicted by a jury, uh, you know. Heading off to jail and that causes a real, again, you know, as you sit down with your family and you're trying to figure out what your, what your goals are and what your trial strategy is, watching some of the co-defendants be convicted is a very sobering thing. So, uh, you know, and again, some, some, some personal opinion here couldn't happen to a nicer person than Cindy Powell. She's, of course, presumed innocent and the government will have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that she broke these laws. But looks like we're going to find that out, you know, in the next couple of months.
0: Yeah. And not only that, but she is an unindicted co-conspirator uh, so far up in the D.C. case, one of the six co-conspirators with Donald Trump in the Jack Smith indictment. Uh, and if there's some mop up cases after they're done with Trump and she gets indicted and she's already a convicted felon elsewhere, that's not good for your sentencing guidelines. So something also to take <laughs> into consideration. Um, there's some other filings uh, as well that, that, there's you know, it, there's going to be so much paper in this case. But Jeffrey Clark has asked Judge McAfee to extend pretrial deadlines in his case until 30 days after he's done litigating any appeals resulting from his efforts to move his state criminal charges to federal court. So Clark wants to go through losing in in (laughs) in the in Judge Jones's court and then appealing to the Eleventh Circuit and going up to SCOTUS. And then he gets 30 days. Uh, for pretrial deadlines. That's what he has filed and asked Judge McAfee for. We'll let you know how that goes. And John Eastman has filed to sever his case from his co-defendants who have filed speedy trial demands in Fulton County, namely Sidney Powell and Ken Cheesebro. Uh, So that's the next one up that Judge McAfee will will look at is to see whether or not Eastman will be able to sever. I don't think that... I, I can't think of a new argument that will make this severable. I think, honestly, everyone who wants a speedy trial is going to go at the same time unless there's more than 6 and then they might split it up um or 8 or something like that but you know we'll see we'll see how it ends up uh, happening afani's last big rico case i think she did 11 or 12 all at the same time um so she's she might go up to that high of a number but 19 is pretty unwieldy so <laughs> i don't and and you don't want to force people into an early trial if they don't want it so that's kind of how I think this will go down. We'll cover all the paper, but you know i don't think I don't think Clark and Eastman have a prayer here if if Meadows didn't
2: right, agreed, and I think you know the the arguments that Eastman might make, I think, are very similar to those that Cindy Powell did that you know to the extent that his you know he's going to claim certainly some of the materi- his activity was. Either privileged because he was acting as an attorney, and you know that that he shouldn't be held liable for advising a client one way or the other. That I, those are largely, you know, Sidney Powell has many of the same arguments. So I, I don't, I can't envision a scenario where Judge McAfee wants to sort of proliferate multiple quick trials coming up, and it would make sense to try. You know, certainly since he's already said no, Sidney and Ken, you're going – cheese, you're going together. I would think Eastman would would get lumped in. We'll see, I think soon enough because again, there's not a lot of time. If if they're going to, you know, they I agree with you. It isn't going in my opinion isn't going to hit October 23rd, but even if it slips a week or two, that's still you know, that's a month and a half from now. So that's that's not a lot of time. So I think we'll, you know, find out soon and again, we'll we'll be here to keep you posted and up to date every week as this rolls along.
0: Yeah. And the DA's argument for trying all 19 together is the same argument they're going to use to try all of the speedy trial people together, which is, hey, I know that maybe seven seems like a lot to go at once, but it would take a lot less time than seven individual trials. Uh, and, And that's what they argued for the 19. Like, I know 19 seems like a lot, But if we tried everybody individually, that would take way longer than grouping them all together. And I think that that's going to be that they'll have a similar argument there, that and just the nature of the RICO statute itself. So um, that's we'll see how it goes. We'll let you know. I have a feeling, but (laughs) we'll keep you posted on what actually happens. All right. We have to take a quick break, uh, but we have a lot more to get to today. So um, we'll be right back. Stay with us.
2: Hey, welcome back. We have more patrons to thank. Terry Greased, Minimum Wager, Still Suki. Yo Mama is so fat, but Donald Trump is still fatter. Devil Went Down to Georgia. He was looking for an election to steal. He was in a bind. He was way behind by 11,780 votes. (laughs) Heather Joy, Julie, either Saint or Street or ST, Uh, Courtney Mooring, Schmutz, Carol Bartolini, Barbara Stoddard. And Patricia Shelton, thank all of you so much. You are the engine that makes this program run, uh, a critical part of the family that allows us to do this week in and week out. So thank all of you very, very much. Appreciate your support. And you make all of this possible. So thank you. So, Allison, let's stay down in, uh, in Georgia. So we have a number of filings and letters from uh, Fonnie Willis, and first was a motion to restrict dissemination of jurors' identities. Uh, you may remember from the earlier grand jury that by Georgia law, that the identities of the grand jurors are published, and so is. One would likely expect, as soon as they were published with the indictments of the 19, they were very quickly picked up on social media. A lot of folks then did some research, published the not only the names of the people, but their home addresses and other things, including on places like, you know, kind of fringe websites. One, 8 coon, eight which I didn't realize – used to be hosted by a U.S. provider, but now it's hosted by, I think it's a Russian provider. So when it comes to mm-hmm. trying to track down like any sort of threats, it's not like you can go to somebody in Seattle, Washington, or Palo Alto, California. You're not going to get anywhere by trying to take a subpoena to somebody in St. Petersburg or Moscow or wherever it is that's hosting it. So there's really some pretty pernicious activity that's going on. And as it turns out, it's not just on some of these websites. It's not just the jurors uh, for the the grand jury that indicted them. It's also uh, Fannie Willis and some of her prosecutors. So it's a real problem. And then this is, you know, this motion is saying, hey, look, you know, I think in anticipation of the trial, some desire to say, you know, we want to restrict the dissemination of the jurors' identities. And hopefully there's a long-term solution in Georgia law, but that's not going to come about before these trials begin. So it's an issue. I'm, I'm curious. You know, I'm sure it is part of Georgia wanting it to be a, you know, a, a sort of sunshine Uh, provision so that there wasn't Mm -hmm. any secrecy to the judicial process. But yet here we are in a place where, you know, unfortunately, you know, in no small measure, in my opinion, because of Donald Trump's statements, we have people involved in the judicial process, judges, prosecutors, jurors, who are living in fear for their safety and the safety of their families. And so we'll see how that motion works out. Um, You know, I think there's an argument to be made that, you know, perhaps you can keep that those identities restricted certainly during the trial and maybe afterwards publicize them. But I'm curious to see how uh, they, they rule on that because it's a real, you know, if I'm a juror and keep in mind too, this isn't just like, oh, hey, great. So you're telling me if I do jury duty on this, that I'm going to be faced potentially with, you know, threats to me and my family and people doxing me and swatting me and doing all this other stuff. And, oh, by the way, how many people are you trying and how long is this trial going to take and how many <laughs> months? Actually, so, so not only do I have to live in fear, but I have to live in fear over the span of many months where I'm not going to be able to go to my job or look for work or whatever my circumstances are, have my life disrupted just because I'm going to be here for such a long time. There's there some challenging aspects to this that I hope, you know, I hope Georgia is able to account for. You know, they've done it before, but not, not in something like this. So I'm curious to yeah. see how, how that shakes out.
0: Yeah, and there's a current RICO case um in Fulton County, uh the YSL case. They're they're eight months in and they don't have a jury yet. So that's it's it's been taking a really long time. Um I, I, I hope that the that these jurors do get um because, you know, normally they'll be like their age, their job, you know, sometimes they don't give out their names, but she doesn't want any of personally identifying information out on these jurors, and I think that's for the best. Uh also <laughs> there was a a letter to Jim Jordan um, from Fonnie Willis accusing him of interference in her prosecution. She said, um, according, uh, St. Jordan's August 24th letter uh, to her included, quote, inaccurate information and misleading statements. And she accused Jordan of improperly interfering with the state criminal case and attempting to punish her for personal political gain. Quote, its obvious purpose is to obstruct a Georgia criminal proceeding and to advance outrageous misrepresentations. As I make clear below, there's no justification in the Constitution for Congress to interfere with a state criminal matter, as you attempt to do. Uh, This is um, some reporting from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They say, in her response, Willis said Jordan's concerns about the timing of the investigation were unfounded. She noted that many witnesses were uncooperative, requiring subpoenas to compel their testimony. And she said that forced her to seek judicial approval to convene a special grand jury to compel testimony and the production of documentary evidence. Even then, she said, some witnesses resisted, requiring further delays. Uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution goes on to say that Willis also responded to allegations that she is unfairly targeting Trump. She says, quote, His status as a political candidate cannot make him legally immune from criminal prosecution. And she noted that the special grand jury recommended charges in the case, and a separate jury issued the indictments. It's not funny Willis's. She, she doesn't indict, right? This is two separate grand juries, the special purpose grand jury, and then the regular grand jury that that issued the indictments. And she says, quote, face this reality, Chairman Jordan, (laughs) the select group of defendants who you fret over in my jurisdiction are like every other defendant, entitled to no worse or better treatment than any other American citizen. Your letter makes clear that you lack basic understanding of the law, its practice, and the ethical obligations of attorneys generally and prosecutors specifically. She actually goes on to recommend a book. <laughs> she says, There's a book you can read. It's $249. Uh, and then she says, If you and your colleagues follow through on your threats to deny this office federal funds, please be aware that you will be deciding to allow serial rapists to go unprosecuted, hate crimes to be unaddressed, and to cancel programs for at risk children. Such vengeful, uncalled for legislative action would impose serious harm on the citizens we serve, including the fact. That it will make them less safe. So she had some words for for our friend Jim. Yeah,
2: and I mean, I think at this point it's just completely transparent what Jordan's trying to do. This is you know coming from the Republican Party of Law and Order, right? We're gonna you know defund you and everything you're doing to prosecute crime across Georgia, just in the service of you know the Orange God that everybody has sworn fealty to. So I, I don't think it's going to. Jordan can try and will try to muck around as best he can. I think it's clear that. He's not going to make a lot of headway, much as you know they didn't up in, uh, in New York either. But when it comes to funding, I mean, some of this, is, you know, come on. It, it, it is clear that but for Donald Trump being charged that none of this would be going on. And, you know, particularly, you know, ironic given the Republican and certainly the, you know, the Freedom Caucus push for limited government and the federal government's too big and we need to return, fundamentally return power to the states and get the big government out of the day-to-day business of the United States of America, except in Georgia when it comes to Donald Trump. And then you all can go F <laughs> yourselves because we're going to stop you from doing that. So it, it is go- and And no, oh, by the way, yes, you know, we need to, you know, go after, you know, the criminals and, you know, it, it won't be the first time Jim Jordan has sheltered, uh, you know, Criminals and allegedly, you know, pederasts, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for for people, victims under his care. So this this Good I'm sure point. isn't a new feeling for him. But it, you know, it's it's absurd, it's ridiculous. Nancy Mace was on uh, on CNN oh, interviewing God. about you know the Biden impeachment, saying, well, you know, and when faced with, hey, you don't have any facts. To support an impeachment inquiry saying, oh, well, that's why we have an inquiry to come up with facts. I mean, it's like, you know, the, just, just the same, you know, re-rolled version of uh, James looking Comer for and Jim fraud. Jordan looking for, you know, get mobilize the base and, you know, c- confuse the process. So
0: it's yeah, clear. We don't, we don't have any evidence of, of voter fraud, but we'll get it. Send us money and we'll get it. That's what this reminds me of. We don't have any evidence. In fact, the Senate Republicans said there isn't any. It didn't look great. It's a little awkward. They said maybe problematic uh, that that Biden Hunter Biden was on the board of Burisma, but there's you know nothing here. And then they open an impeachment inquiry. They can't they they can't find it. This is what the Durham investigation was. It was what the David Weiss investigation was. It was it's Trump's tail as old as time thing. Announce an investigation. We'll find the shit later. Hmm? That's that's what it is. What Ukraine, which you know with the extorting Zelensky. Um, it just it, that's, that's their MO. It's, and they're doing it here again. Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't think it's going to work out well for them, but I, her letter was very pointed. I love where she's like, here's a book you can read. It's only $249. You should go get it. <laughs> um, all about Rico. You should l- read up on it. Rico for dummies. It's called. No, <laughs> it's not, but this should be uh, also Afani Willis filed in opposition to Latham's motion for removal to federal court. And I don't normally want to go over, like, every single opposition and filing and all the papering that's happening in this trial. But this one was interesting because she pushed back on that uh, 1960 Hawaii uh, excuse, uh, and I'm I'm glad she did. She she said repeated invocations to precedent allegedly set in Hawaii during the 1960 presidential election misses the mark by a wide margin. First, and this principle hardly seems necessary to explain— Actions that did not result in prosecution 60 years ago in a different jurisdiction with different election code and criminal statutes presided over by different prosecuting agencies and with differing substantive evidence of criminal intent provide zero protection for defendant Latham and her co-defendants who conspired to advance the 2020 fraudulent elector scheme in Georgia. Second, the factual situations are so readily distinguishable as to make the comparison meaningless. In 1960, by the December 19th date when Hawaii electors met, the Republican slate of electors had been certified by the governor based on the initial tally of votes, but due to the close margin of less than 150 votes, an official recount was ongoing. In the present case, when Defendant Latham and the other fraudulent electors met, two recounts had already been completed, each of which confirmed a margin of victory for then-candidate Biden of more than 11,000 votes. (laughs) Additionally, in Hawaii. When the recount resolved the Demo- in, the, in the Democratic candidate's favor, JFK, that was on December 28th, and only after a court affirmed that process of a recount, the governor of Hawaii recertified the election and appointed the Democratic slate of electors. Defendant and her cohort of fraudulent electors had no such official stamp of approval. And I'm, I'm really glad she went through this exercise. I like how she's like, I can't believe I have to fucking say this but here we go. And and so I'm, I'm glad she addressed it.
2: Yeah. And by the way, Hawaii, this was the first time they had ever done it. It became a state right in August, 1959. So the very first, this is the very first time that Hawaii had ever come up with needing to come up with electors and certify them. And so, you know, they, they, they're so completely at odds with the facts that exist in or the Hawaiian example and from 60 is so completely at odds. You know, I, I agree with you. I'm glad she did it, but it does, you know, this is the thing that, Yes, it's a pain in the butt for her to have to respond to it. She does have to respond to it. I'm glad she did. But that's the thing when you start talking about like 19 defendants. Are all 19 of them going to file nonsense motions that you have to take the time to respond to? No, but it does make it complex. And so, again, it's it's part of the goal is not that this has any expectation of success. You know, Latham may, you know, the attorneys and talking say, hey, look, you know, this isn't going to succeed. Part of the issue is it doesn't matter if it's going to succeed or not, part of what you're doing is just trying to throw sand in the gears to slow everything down. Because again, the goal is the longer you can stretch this out, whoever you are individually to postpone you going to jail and cumulatively to push this out past the election, it's the the broader sort of goal is to delay for any number of reasons. And this is you know an example of that. And good reasoning, good legal argument from from Fonnie Willis, but just an example of the sort of stuff that we're going to be seeing for the next many months as this moves forward.
0: Absolutely. And we'll keep on top of it for you uh, as best we can. Like I said, we're not going to go through every single filing. She makes excellent arguments in all of them, but I wanted to bring up this Hawaii thing because a lot of people have brought it up and they keep bringing it up as some sort of a, an example of what they were trying to do. And she just obliterates it in a, in a few short paragraphs. So All right. We have more to get to, but we need to take another quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back.
1: Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, There, you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.
0: Hey, everybody, welcome back. We have more patrons to thank. A big shout out to Poppy Massey, Laura Amen, Therese, Janet Allured, Captain Sanity, awesome, Brent Medling, Teresa Tanzi, Francis, uh, Christine uh, Walk, Sid, Even, which is E E V E N N. At dj3vn.com, we have Judith Chin, Lord Harvey McCregal. All of you, thank you so, so very much for your support. We couldn't do it without you. Uh, I want to now shift over to the special grand jury, the special purpose grand jury report. Um, This is just a quick intro from uh, Kate Broomback at Associated Press. The special grand jury that investigated efforts by Trump and others to overturn Georgia's 2020 election Recommended indictments against twice as many people as the 19 ultimately charged by prosecutors, leaving South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham among those not indicted. So, first of all, Judge McBurney, who presided over this, uh, said he was going to release the full thing on September 8 unless there was any opposition. There was no opposition. Nobody filed anything to oppose this. Maybe people are running out of money. I don't know, <laughs> but nobody opposed this. The release of this. Uh, including people who weren't indicted. Uh, m- and I don't know if they got target letters uh, from special purpose grandeur. I don't know how any of that works. I'm I'm mostly familiar with the federal system. But I don't know if they knew that they were being recommended for indictment and then were waiting to see if they were were indicted. And 20 people like were like, whew, okay, I'm not going to be indicted. But what was more interesting to me um, w- were the people who weren't indicted. They mentioned... The Associated Press there mentions Lindsey Graham. There was also Cleta Mitchell, who was knee-deep in all this. Um, she wasn't indicted. Uh, Mike Flynn uh, was recommended for indictment. Now, we have senators, uh, former senators, I should say, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue as being part of the criminal enterprise. Now, there's a lot of things that the special purpose grand... They aren't prosecutors, right, the special purpose grand jury. Uh, they don't have... Uh, I mean the same kind of tools and and things like that to decide whether or not they're going to bring charges because they don't. The special purpose grand jury does not indict people. They only make recommendations. And so to see that there were, I think, 39 people that were supposed to be charged. I I, remember my guess was 17.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I thought you were over. So, and you know.
0: (laughs) So, so this, I think the main thing that this shows is is one of the arguments that uh, I think the, the people on the right were making was that, you know, she she's a, out to get everybody. Um, this is a witch hunt. Uh, the, this is a rubber stamp. She's just going to indict everybody they recommend. And, and now we see she indicted one less than half um, of 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 the people. And there are some big names on there that a lot of us feel should have been indicted. But what does that say to you? Do you think they're cooperating?
2: No, I don't think so. I, I think it largely indicates that there's some amount of uh, prosecutorial discretion that's going on. It absolutely shows that she's not a rubber stamp out to get everybody and politically motivated is is false. That she carefully took with her team, looked at all the evidence. And remember, it, you know, as you pointed out, the special purpose grand jury—they're not prosecutors. I mean, they're they're everyday citizens. I don't know whether or not there are any actual attorneys who are on the grand jury, but they're just looking at the. They're looking at the testimony and evidence that was presented to them and looking at Georgia law and making recommendations. What they aren't doing is the sort of like, you know, the the the, the state version of a prosecution memo, right? Where we're attorneys, where prosecutors will look at all the evidence and say, okay, not only did all these people say this, but let's take a let's take a look at what we would have to do to achieve a unanimous uh, verdict, which, you know, again, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. What sort of speech or debate uh protections would Lindsey Graham have or Kelly Loeffler or others, you know, who were in any sort of legislative position? What might they argue if we were to charge them? What sort of credibility issues does anybody who's going to testify against Mike Flynn or Cleta Mitchell, you know, does somebody who's a critical witness come with a bunch of baggage? Have they... You know, been found guilty of, uh, you know, of, of, of false statements in the past. Do they have problems with their credibility? All these things that prosecutors have to do, special purpose grand jury wasn't doing that at all. So it doesn't surprise me at all to see, again, one less than half of the of the recommended folks being charged. Again, whatever my, you know, personal feelings of who I would like to have been charged, I think the, the overwhelming message that this sends to me is Fannie Willis and her team are doing an objective job of looking at the law, looking at the evidence and facts that they have, and applying those, you know, applying that against who they're going to decide to charge, or in this case, not charge. So, you know, was was Lindsey Graham much shenanigans? No question about it. Mike Flynn? No question about it, in my opinion. Cleta Mitchell? Absolutely. Again, all in, in my opinion from what's been written about. But at the end of the day, I think this speaks very well to Fannie Willis and her team, that they are not simply, you know, political you know, hatchet men and women out to get everybody they can on the right side of the aisle. That's not what's going on. And, you know, the question, why didn't anybody uh, object to it? I don't, you know, I don't know. Some of this, I can see that, you know, for somebody like, you know, any number of these folks, you know, almost like, you know, Donald Trump's, oh, complete exoneration, right? They looked at me and didn't charge me. And it's just another example of, you know, the woke libs trying to go after me. So, you know, put $5 in the, in the hat that's being passed around and help me defend myself. And it's all, you know, works, goes into the grift, the never ending grift and whatever Mike Lynn's tour across America that he's, you know, doing all these <laughs> crazy revivals to, you know, the fleecing of America. Right. So again, it it's, it's interesting because it shows the scope of the people that they were looking at, but does it you know, does it does it surprise me? No, and if anything, it kind of reassures me a little bit that there was there was a measure of discretion that was going on within the Fulton County District Attorney's office.
0: Yeah, and we should remember too that you know a lot of folks think the Senator Lindsey Graham and Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue that not indicting them might have been a political consideration. But I do have to say that not wanting to fight and this we of course we don't know what we don't know and we don't know why they weren't indicted. But if it had something to do with having to battle the speech or debate clause with this Supreme Court, maybe that wasn't a battle that was worth the taxpayers' money. Um, but that I don't think that's a political consideration. I think that's a legal consideration. But also, we don't know that that's the reason she didn't indict them. Now, some of the uh, people who weren't indicted are cooperating. We know that those eight um, fraudulent electors that were offered immunity after the special purpose grand jury, because their lawyer didn't give it to them, didn't offer, didn't make them the offer, We know they're cooperating. So there could be other cooperators here. But again, we just don't know. Uh, But, you know, it is it's interesting. The Mike Flynn and the Cleta Mitchell seems pretty open and shut. But again, I'm not a prosecutor and I'm not looking at it from that point of view. And also on this list is Burt Jones. Fonnie Willis had to recuse from investigating Burt Jones because she did a campaign fundraiser. She was at a fundraiser for his opponent uh, but he is being looked at now by a separate office. So just because he wasn't indicted here, doesn't mean he won't be indicted uh, by that other office. So I I think that it might also be a mistake to think that just because people's names are on this list and they weren't indicted, that they won't be. And I'm talking specifically about Bert Jones. The rest of them, I'm th- I'm, I'm sure Fonnie Willis did consider because she wasn't recused from from their cases. So it's um a fascinating look. At at what the special purpose grand jury put forward, because like you said, they don't have to decide about a, what a speech or debate clause battle looks like um, with the Eleventh Circuit and with this Supreme Court. Then um, that's just one example of many, 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 many things that could be why they didn't get indicted. Um, but I, you know, Mike Flynn and Clotilda Mitchell stand out to me as interesting.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I think there is going to be it, it, the. Not a worry, but a big question in my mind, again, sort of stepping back, is looking at this the, that connective layer, right? The people like Cleta Mitchell, like Mike Flynn, like Roger Stone. There are a group of people right now that haven't been indicted either in a state court or in a federal court. We're clearly involved in January 6th and we've got accountability. We've got convictions. You know, the senior leadership of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and now the, you know, the charges against Donald Trump and the people, you know, close and around him, certainly at, in Georgia and presumably, you know, co-conspirator one through six in Jack Smith's um, indictment of Trump. There, there are they are there, but there is this level, and it is it is the these Willard, folks.
0: the Willard, yeah, they, is it's missing. the Willard
2: crew, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. You know the Christina Bob, it's the whole the, everybody in the war room, and it's like you know, and and again, it it will be interesting to me to see how that shakes out because one, they can be difficult cases to prove, you know, what somebody actually said and did versus you know what you think they did, but you can't maybe can't prove it, and two, that just these are so big and complex, there's always. Any, I, I mean, I remember working cases, particularly very complex ones. There are always avenues, there are always things that you can pursue that at some point you make a decision. Okay, we need to focus our, wh- what is the main goal here? Who are the prime, what, what is it that we're trying to do? And yes, of course, it's, you know, prosecute violations of law, but y- you can go, you can have a thousand tentacles that go out for a thousand miles for years and years and years. And there's frequently a decision say, okay, we're going to scope it this way. And whatever is outside that scope, not that there wasn't crime there, not that there was an investigation to do, but just you don't have unlimited resources on unlimited time. And I think where I'm very curious to see is how that bumps up against this connective layer and whether or not people who quite possibly committed crimes don't get charged because it's just... Too big, and, and, and Allison, we've we've never seen this. is so big. You can't it's compare huge. this to Watergate. You can't even compare this to the stuff that 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 Special Counsel Mueller did, which was plenty complex. This is so broad. When you look at everything at the federal level, at state
0: after state after state, there's so much crime. And even the one, even the one man four count indictment brought by Jack Smith. That's supposed to be the quick one. Uh, they have potentially 250 witnesses. Right. So, you know, when they're down there arguing in Georgia, 150 witnesses is going to take eh, forever. We need all the time in the world. That, that's that's 150 is low um, <laughs> compared yep. uh, to, to what's going on in D.C. Um, and that's just for one man and four counts.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And again, going back to that analog we talked about earlier, look at the federal trials of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. I mean, those took a long time. And this is certainly going to be, you know, here the stakes are higher. There are going to be even more sort of litigious defendants and expect them to be as complex and take as long. But again, the point is, anytime you get something that big and that complex, there are margin actors who don't for better or worse, who who don't get brought into um into the process that and maybe they should. And if you had 10 years and a thousand attorneys to go after it, maybe you might, but you've got to make that call. And I think there's a very real possibility that, you know, some folks who did bad things, illegal things, are gonna get away with it, which is on the more, again, you know, said it once, I'll say it a thousand times. You know, don't the justice system will only satisfy a moral sense of desire for justice, it only goes so far. So, you know, it will, it will inevitably, if you're counting only on the judicial system to create social justice, to create justice broadly, you're going to be sorely disappointed because there there are limitations and uh, guardrails built into the process. So the best thing you can do, if you feel outraged, if you're angry, if you want to do something, get involved, get out and vote, Get your neighbors, get your friends, get everybody, because that your participation is the way to achieve that justice far more than what you're going to see, given the limitations of our, our judicial system.
0: Absolutely. Um, all right. We have uh, just a couple more stories. I, I think we might get through this in an hour, Pete. We might actually Yeah, we're
2: done. We got <laughs> Santos coming up. so <laughs> yeah,
0: We do. We've got Santos and a couple of other... Quick stories and a, and a new uh, a comings and goings. We haven't had one of those in a while, um, which is where, um, in fact, I think this is your first comings and goings, Pete. It is. This is. We had an extensive um, segment on this show where people would be, Trump administration people would be leaving and new people would be coming in, being replaced by Biden. It's still going on. So we have a comings and goings section today, uh, but we have to take a quick break. So we'll get to that in just a minute. Stay with us.
2: All right. Welcome back. It's time to thank our Hall of Fame patrons. Uh, You are the folks, you are the superstars. You are the founding, just uh, members of all of the support that make this program go, you go above and beyond. You are absolutely the rock stars of this program. Uh, We cannot thank you enough for your support. And so this week, I want to thank Sharon Tkalski at Dirt Road Dems, Dr. David Karen Sherman, again, Hall of Famers. Thank you so much for everything that you do and for your support. Uh, you, you, you truly. Uh, it, it's hard to thank you enough for your support, but uh, we yeah, deeply, blows deeply my mind. appreciate it.
0: Blows so, my mind. And, I'm so grateful.
2: And it allows us to bring you stories like George Santos, who <laughs> has again, a judge has agreed. You know, you may remember that he was uh, indicted uh, much earlier this year. A Judge has agreed to postpone a meeting scheduled this week. After prosecutors asked for more time for the parties to discuss, quote, possible paths forward in this matter. Now, this was a joint submission, so this is something that both uh Santos and the prosecutors agreed to. There's some indication that, you know, the the likely reading of the tea leaves is that potentially they're talking about a plea deal. The judge agreed and postponed it until October 27th, so about a month and a half from now. And so we'll see whether or not we get a plea deal uh from Santos. We're Obviously, he would plead guilty to felonies, presumably, and the fallout from that, we'll see. Uh, you know, we we talked a little bit about on the, you know, whether or not, if even if he is convicted, whether or not he would be required to leave Congress. The answer, it appears, is no, but, you know, we'll get there. Let's see what happens uh, in the month and a half or so before October 27th. You know, and, and there there's more Santos news, and this was a little bit both aggravating and unsurprising. There's a <laughs> right. report showing that the, there is an outside firm hired by Santos in 2021 essentially to do internal oppo research, right? To look into him, look for all the skeletons in his closet, all the things that might be embarrassing. And guess what? <laughs> they found a ton of it and delivered it to a bunch of people who knew about all his BS and said nothing about it. So in 2021, they delivered a secret internal report detailing aspects of Santos's checkered background. Several of his aides found it too much to stomach, and they they, they said, Hey, look, <laughs> this is horrible. This is bad. You need to drop out. And he said, Nope, I'm not going to do it. And so then they quit. But then, yep. even after New York voters elected Santos the following year, and news reports began exposing concerning questions about his conduct, the original report was still never made public until just recently, last week. So it it. That what What's damning, and there's not a lot surprising, what we now know is that all the things we now know were known to Republican Party mm-hmm. officials way back prior to his election. His The conclusions of the report ultimately circulated among campaign strategists for top House Republicans and led the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the primary super PAC, Dedicated to electing House Republicans, it was so concerning that it said, hey, look, we're not going to support Santos. But nevertheless, you know, standout stalwarts of the Republican Party, like Elise Stefanik, nevertheless, after, well after the report was compiled, nevertheless, stood up and campaigned with Santos to get him elected. So, again, this just, it doesn't matter. It, it There is no Moral line too low for the Republican Party. If there is somebody out there that can get elected, if there's somebody out there who will just sign up and vote the way they want, it doesn't matter if you're lying George Santos, allegedly. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, four-time indicted Donald Trump. It doesn't matter your behavior, the morality of it, the legality of it. It, it, There's no no conscience to the party whatsoever.
0: They need that vote. They need that vote in the House so they can, I don't know, have an impeachment inquiry on based on no evidence. <laughs> that's that's why we're of... having it,
2: to get the evidence, Allison. That's, <laughs> oh, that's probably... oh, I'm
0: sorry. That's right. That's right. Just leave the rest to me and the Republicans in Congress. Um, a Senate GOP report has found no wrongdoing in Hunter Biden's ties to Burisma, but they still felt it was awkward and problematic. Uh, here's from uh, the report. A report released Wednesday by Senate Republicans found the role of Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, on the board of Burisma, that's a Ukrainian energy company, was, quote, awkward and at times, quote, problematic for U.S. officials dealing with the country, but provides no evidence and no new evidence and found no instance of policy being altered as a result of his role. member that Comer was like, well, it's, you know, it's a pay for play. It's a, we'll do the policy because of this. And and there, no, there is none. And this is from Senate Republicans. And Republican Senator Ron Johnson who led this investigation, as chair of the Homeland Security Committee, has openly said he hoped the election year probe would hurt the Democratic nominee. But the Republican report, based largely on new accounts, broke no new ground. So
2: yeah wop, well we h- hopes it would help hurt the re- uh, the uh, democratic nominee, so I'm sorry Hunter Biden is running for president oh no, that's right that's right he his his father is, and this report has nothing to do with his father and if we if we want to talk about the children of people running for presidency again let's let's talk about children getting two billion dollars from the Saudi sovereign yeah. Wealth fund and let's talk about whether that relationship makes it quote unquote awkward or quote unquote problematic. For U.S. officials dealing with Saudi Arabia, I wonder. I wonder. Maybe I wonder if that also is the case. So again, it isn't. The, the The thing is, it isn't a huge ledger of bad behavior on one side and an empty ledger on the other side. You've got bad behavior on one side, and then the other side is five times worse. And I, I just the the just sheer la the sheer gall, the sheer sort of audacity to sit there and pursue this and make these accusations. When all somebody has to say is, what about Jared? And, And it is a thousand times worse. What about Ivanka in the PRC? What about what about the Trump Holdings and, and real estate deals in Oman?
0: What I mean, it, it uh, what is, about Apollo and Citigroup and the 666 Fifth Avenue building with Cutter? Uh, right,
2: and you want to talk about weird? Let's talk about the Deutsche Bank relationship and loans that were made mm-hmm. and whether or not there was sufficient, you know, diligence made by the bank during a period that they were in a, a under a non prosecution agreement. How? Let, let's 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 compare apples to apples. If you're so outraged by this behavior, if you're so concerned by how this might impact a candidate's suitability to be the president, fine,
0: let's do that. Yeah, Nicole Wallace called it the audacity gap, and yeah, I, thought that that, I, I, we, <laughs> I thought that was a great uh, turn of phrase.
2: Yeah, we don't even need to talk about the 19 indictments. Let's just leave that off the table for now. Let's talk about all the entanglements of the family surrounding the two presumptive presidential candidates and how those might be used to influence the candidate themselves and impact their suitability to be president of the United States. Let's do it. Let's start. Let's start. Let's, let's look at Jared and Ivanka and Eric and Sniffly Don Jr.
0: Yeah. Even something as simple as the cutter the blockade with with Saudi yes. Arabia. Like that whole thing was ob... Anyway, you know, we're uh, preaching to the choir. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> like, and they they found nothing. It was just awkward. Awkward. You have to say it that way. You have to say, yeah. um, <laughs> well, we have our findings of the report and it's awkward. But that's really all we've got. Um as Senator Ron Johnson, well done, sir. <laughs> what a
2: god just a just a boil
0: on the ass of Wisconsin. I'm sorry. It's, it's, uh... <laughs> All right. Well, it's time to resurrect an old tradition here on clean up on Aisle 45 This is the comings and Going section. We have a Cummings. This is so great. The Senate on Thursday confirmed Anna Gomez, President Biden's pick for the Federal Communications Commission. That has ended a lengthy partisan split at the regulatory agency. It gives Democrats the power to carry out major agenda items. Only happened what Two, three years into yeah, 20, his September twenty
2: twenty three. Sure.
0: Yep. Senators voted fifty five to forty three to confirm Gomez. She's an FCC veteran who's a communications policy advisor for the State Department. She will take the third Democratic seat on the five member commission which oversees broadband and communications regulations. Uh, and so there was a there was a whole deadlock, uh, uh, delay. Senate Republicans just put this off and put this off. Uh, but now we finally have three fifths majority on the FCC. Uh, and when I say we, I mean the the Biden administration. Um, I didn't mean to <laughs> insinuate I was part of that. But um, anyhow, uh, I, I'm glad that this, that we finally got this uh, seat taken care of. This makes me curious. What is going on with the Postal Board and DeJoy? Like, I need to do a deeper dive into that. I've got no new reporting on that.
2: Yeah, and maybe that's something we can take up during a uh, a bonus episode because it. I think he's still there. And the question is, like, look, mm-hmm. I mean, there's... The reason we have elections and administrations is that you implement policy. You may or may not like it, If you're on, certainly if you're on the other side, but the reality is you get elected, presumably as if you're part of the executive branch. You want to be able to have things like this with an FCC board where there is a Democratic majority, just as if you're a Republican president you would want to be able to put in a Republican majority. And the fact of the matter is that we're like, what, two years and nine months or not? Yeah. After the inauguration, we finally, two and a half years into a four-year term. Have a an FCC able to engage in policy decisions in line with the elected president? Great, but I, it does make me wonder about the Postal Board, and I think you're right. I don't think there has been movement. So, uh, again, we can maybe maybe take that up on the bonus episode if there's anything juicy there. But definitely something to look at. It's it's a not going as as the case may be, right?
0: <laughs> it's a staying. <laughs> a staying. I don't want that. Um, but uh, anyway, very good to have a comings and goings again. So. Um... Excellent. We are now, uh, we are Thundercats are go at the FCC, Pete. Uh, that is our show. We got it all in in under an hour. I am uh, actually a little bit uh, taken aback by the fact that we were able to cover all that. Um, on this past bonus episode, you and I talked a lot about the uh, Elon Musk Starlink uh, sabotage of Ukrainian communications on the ground. Um, and now there's some Isaacson, the the guy who wrote the book, is walking back what he said. In I like I don't I don't know what's going on, but that was a fun episode. If you if you haven't listened to the bonus episode from this past weekend, that is what we discussed. And yeah, we'll, we'll maybe we'll take a look at the Joy this weekend. We've got also a lot of input from some listeners who uh, have a lot of things they wanted to talk about. We had somebody say, "Hey, where's the comings and going section?" That was a big part of cleaning up on aisle 45. And we, I was like, "Well, we really haven't had any." Um, everybody's job was pretty much in place uh, but we got one this week so I'm happy to report that uh, but Pete thanks thanks to our patrons too and uh, we will be back this weekend with our bonus episode for patrons and back next Wednesday in your ears I've been Allison Gill
2: and I'm Pete Struck,
0: and this has been Clean Up on Aisle 45